We, this morning, continue in the series that, that we started last week, if you were here with us in this uh, time of Lent as we begin our journey to the, to the cross, to Holy Week, to the celebration of Easter. In these weeks that we spend in that time, we are going to continue to look at some of the foundational statements of faith that are found in our ancient confessions, most specifically in the, the Apostles' Creed, but also we may from time to time pull in the Nicene Creed. If you are here last week, I talked about just a very brief history of those two creeds, and there certainly are uh, many others uh, that we use and many others that are in uh, your hymnals, if you ever want to pull them out, and some that we use in worship. But these are the two that we're primarily going to to focus on in, um, in our time in these, these weeks together. And this morning, well, let me say real quick, I've had a few people come up to me and say, you know, are you going to talk about this? Are you going to talk about that? And, and, and I kind of referenced last week that um, we can't, we're not going to be able to exhaust these creeds. We're not going to get to everything, and, and I wish we had time to kind of go through every line, but we're not going to be able to do that. But I hope we'll address some of the things that maybe you've wondered about. So this morning, if you have not already peeked or seen or, or caught the theme in our worship time and in our music, we, we look at the declaration that says, we believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. That's our affirmation. That's our focus this morning. And to really wrestle with what that means when we say that how deep and profound that statement of faith is and how foundational it is for our call and our identity as Christians. And so I'm going to turn for our foundational scripture this morning to the, to the Gospel of John, first chapter. Now, here's the interesting thing for this statement of faith and this focus on Jesus. There is no shortage of scriptures I could have chosen from. But I chose John because I think it is such a beautiful introduction that this gospel gives us to Jesus. If, if you know and are familiar with the, the gospels, the way that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John begin their writings, begin their story, and they're um, rec recounting the life and the ministry of, of Jesus, you know that Matthew and Luke, they both begin with the infancy narratives. They begin with the story of the birth. Every Christmas when we worship together, we'll read primarily from those gospels. Mark begins with Jesus as an adult. And so does John, but John gives a beautiful, even poetic, I think, deeply theological introduction to Jesus and who he is. And so these words may be very familiar, maybe not so much, but hear afresh the words from the beginning of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. 
The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and through him the world was, and, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God for the people of God. Let us pray. Lord, that we would receive the light of life, that we would hear the Word, which speaks to our hearts and calls us to faith. And we would hear your word about the one whom we are called to place our faith in. Bless these moments that they would draw us close to our Savior, our Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. In the Gospel of Matthew, another section of the Gospel, in the 16th chapter, there is a pivotal event that shifts the trajectory of the life and the ministry of Jesus, that, that directs it, if you will. And it happens in a place called Caesarea Philippi. And in this encounter and in these moments and in the aftermath of these moments, Jesus would begin to focus more and more time with his disciples, would begin to prepare them and himself for what was to come in Jerusalem. He begins both a literal and a figurative journey to Jerusalem, emotionally, spiritually, as the disciples begin to make their way to the place in which the culmination of Jesus' ministry, his trial, his crucifixion, and his resurrection would happen. And that pivotal event there with Jesus and his disciples at Caesarea Philippi begins with a question that Jesus asks to them. And he says, Who do people say that I am? And that is a great question to frame this part of our time spent in the Apostles' Creed. Who do people say that I am? That would be an interesting question to ask. That would be an, an interesting thing to go out and to be able to poll and just pull people off the street and say... Who do you say Jesus is? Because this is what I, I speculate we would find. This is what you know, those who have done these kind of things tell us that they find when that question is asked. Well, certainly if, if, you, if you bump into the, the person who is of faith, who is a Christian, who has grown up in the church or spent time I, I, as a Christian, you're going to hear the, the, what I call the church language. And, and I don't mean that in a, in a negative way at all. But you're probably going to ask that question and you're going to hear responses like, well, Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Savior of the world. Uh, Jesus is the rock or the bread of life or the light of life. There, there's a lot of language that we use, images and, and descriptions to talk about Jesus. And, and most church people are going to identify with the, that kind of language. But if you start to grab or you start and stumble upon those who are not believers who don't go to church, who don't profess the faith that we do, 
what we know is that most often you're still going to find a deep admiration for Jesus. You're often still going to find people that, that, that speak respectfully of Jesus. You're going to hear things that are a little different, though. You're going to hear things like, well, Jesus was a great teacher. Jesus was an incredible moral leader. Jesus was a man of love. Jesus was a man who showed people a different way to live. You're going to hear these kind of descriptions that, based, that, that, that kind of base on some of the things that, that Jesus said. And most often, you're still going to hear a lot of respect. Not always. You know, you're going to hear some people that are going to be dismissive or, or um, critical. But that's not going to be the dominant um, story that you're going to hear. Most people, even outside of the faith, have a tremendous respect for, for Jesus. In fact, it reminds me of the quote that is attributed to Gandhi, that he spoke to his friend, and the name escapes me, but who was a, a Presbyterian pastor. And he said to his friend, who was a Christian, he says, I like your Christ. Gandhi said, I like your Christ. I just don't like your Christians. Often your Christians don't look like your Christ. And that's a profound statement, and that's an examination for another story, I mean for another sermon. But, but the, the statement that he makes, I like your Christ, you'll, you'll find that very, very often. The problem is, even outside the church or inside the church, those kind of ad, words of admiration, those attributes of Jesus as a great teacher and a great leader and a great example of, of love, while true, are incomplete. They're an incomplete picture of who do you say that I am. And this statement in the creed, we believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. The statement that, that follows the, the affirmation of faith in God. Remember I said last week, we start with we believe in God. And the rest of the creed is going to be a flushing out of what that looks like. And that's exactly, we believe in God, Father Almighty, maker, maker of heaven and earth. And we immediately then, in our creedal affirmation, turn to Jesus, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, which begins to flesh out that answer, who do people say that I am? This is the answer the church has, has declared through generations, for years and thousands of years, in that answer, who is Jesus? Because it is probably the singularly most difficult question we wrestle with in faith, because of the profound mystery of the way God has made himself known in Jesus. But when we, when we just credit him as a teacher and a leader, we, we miss the whole picture of what the Scriptures tell us who Jesus is. So let's look, and we're not going to be able to mine the full depth of this, but let's look at the profound nature of just these phrases. Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. I, I was in seminary. And I was asked to, uh, given an assignment, one of the papers I had to write in a theology class was a paper on the statement, Jesus Christ is Lord. What does that mean? And it was like supposed to be a 10-page paper. And I thought, how am I going to fill 10 pages with Jesus Christ is Lord? Well, I started to get into it and started to read and study. At 12 pages, I had to stop. And I hadn't even scratched the surface. Volumes have been written about the significance of what it means when we use these words. And so as we're going to do throughout the series, we're going to kind of, we're going to kind of section some things off. We're just going to look at this. And the first thing we say is we believe in Jesus. That's the first part. Let's just stop right there at Jesus. That is a name for, for us as Christians that is reverent, that is sacred, that is holy. But we forget it's also incredibly common. 
When I was growing up as a kid, as opposed to any other way to grow up, um, <laughs> in, in our household, my brothers and I, being baseball players and loving sports, uh, we watched, we played a lot of baseball, we watched a lot of baseball, and one of our favorite teams to watch as kids was the Philadelphia Phillies. Now, it's not because we had any great affinity for Philadelphia or, um, not the negative, but, you know, but, but there was a reason we were attracted to the Philadelphia Phillies, and it was because they had a Hall of Fame third baseman on that team that we really, really liked. Anybody know who their third? I know you know, but anybody else know who the third baseman was? Mike Schmidt. Mike Schmidt. And as kids, that was cool. We called him in our household, we called him Uncle Mikey. <laughs> We're not related to him, to our knowledge. We never met him. But, you know, as little kids, you kind of, that guy's got our name. And so we love to watch the Phillies. In fact, on a side note, my brother in his second or third year of baseball played on the Phillies. And they were, we had replica um, Major League uniforms. That's when the Phillies used to wear the pinstripes. And he wore, and he wore the same number as Mike Schmidt. We got pictures of that. Was, we, I don't know. that uh, We always talked about sending it off to Mike Schmidt. I don't think we ever did. We should have, though. But, um, but here's the reason I even bring that up. Was in those years, I remember as a, as a kid watching a game, and I was taken aback because of the name of the shortstop of the teams. It still sticks in my brain. It was the first time this became apparent to me, or, or it was kind of a revelation, if you will. The name of the shortstop for the Phillies in those early years was Ivan de Jesus. That's what it looked like to me. And I remember seeing this and thinking, you can't have that name. That's Jesus. You can't be named Jesus. That's not right. Now, we know that it wasn't Ivan de Jesus. It was Ivan de Jesus. And we know that that name is seen, and, and it, there's been a lot of Latin ballplayers and Latin people that have that name, Jesus. But to a kid, I saw Jesus. And I thought, no, you don't get that name is singular. That name is special. That name is, is, is for the Jesus that we worship. But the reality is that name was incredibly common. Jesus is, it, it is the Hebrew word, Yahshua which we translate into English as Joshua. Jesus and Joshua are the same name. What happens is if you go, well, why do we use both? Well, because in the Hebrew, um, Yahshua is translated directly into English as Joshua. But if you take Yahshua as it's ascribed to Jesus and you give it the Greek translation, it's Iesus. And when you translate that into English, it becomes Jesus. So there's an extra translation step which renders the different the different understandings, but they're the same name. And the idea is that Jesus was in many ways as common and as ordinary and as regular as we are in some ways. Don't go ahead of me there because I know that sounds a little disrespectful and blasphemous, but I'm convinced that if you were living in Nazareth 2,000 years ago prior to the, the, the ministry of Jesus, prior to the miracles, prior to the, the, the miraculous things he said and did, and you rubbed shoulders with him, you wouldn't give him a second look. He'd look like us. He'd act like us. He was just a. He was Jesus. There was a Jesus here. There's probably Jesus lived over there. There's probably another Jesus lived down the street. It was a common name. Now, why is that significant for us? It reminds us God's story starts in what seems to be the ordinary, and it's 
concrete and it's located and it's historical. This is not an affirmation of faith in a um, non-definable, ambiguous, um, fictional person. This is a historical person that lived and walked and breathed and ate and had life the same way we have life. Jesus, Palestinian, 2,000 years ago on the shores of Galilee, living in the time of Roman occupation, following the Jewish faith. That is Jesus. Now, we attribute a second title because it doesn't stop at Jesus. It goes to Jesus Christ. Christ is not the last name. It's the title of who this... Now, the ordinary starts to become extraordinary because Jesus is given a designation that says to us, this historical Jesus is not just a normal guy. It's not just a Jewish carpenter. It's not just like us in insignificance. This is the one who God has promised. Christ means anointed. It's the same word as Messiah. This is the one that God had promised for hundreds and hundreds of years. The prophecies are found from Genesis on about the one that God would send. This is who this Jesus is. You know, every Christmas we talked about reading from Matthew and Luke. We also read from Isaiah. We read from the prophet who wrote his words hundreds of years before Jesus was born because we know in faith that this Jesus is not just the ordinary guy, but he is the anointed Christ who is the fulfillment of the promises of God, who is the revelation that God hasn't forgotten about us. And God honors his promises. So Jesus Christ. And with that combination of realities, that normal becomes extraordinary. The everyday becomes extraordinary and the, the normal becomes sacred for us. And that name becomes the name in which Paul would say in Philippians, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess in heaven and under heaven that he is Lord. So that name now becomes, and, and that is, and that is not to be treated lightly. And, and Ryan and Cassie will tell you, if you were to ask them, that, that you know, Tony and I in our household, we, we try to model an example for our kids. And we try to teach them, like you do as parents or have as parents, expectations for behavior and respect and decorum. And one of those things is in the language that we use and that we use appropriate language. And, and we try to model that. And let, let me say to you, I'm not always the, the best model of that. I, you know, I, I've said to each service, I, I'm, I'm free and, and honest with you about my own struggles. And if you're looking for a perfect pastor who's never said anything bad in his entire life, you're at the wrong church. So I'm not perfect in that. And my kids have seen those lesser, less than stellar moments. But they will tell you that there are some absolutes, um, non-negotiable, uh, line in the sands in our house as far as words we use. And, and one of them is this, that we don't ever speak the name of Jesus except in reverence, respect, and worship. Jesus is not a name that we throw out there as, a, as an expletive when we're angry. Jesus is not a name that we throw out there as a cast aside when we're frustrated. We honor that name as we do the name of God because it is the name we speak and worship and it is the name at which every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. That matters. It is the Christ in Jesus that, that elevates and des designates who Jesus is. Jesus, the ordinary, who is the anointed. 
So, it is this affirmation, Jesus Christ. And then, well, what does that mean? Well, we say that He is God's only Son. He is God's only Son. And this speaks to the specific and unique relationship that Jesus has with the Father. The very first thing that we affirm is God, who is known as Father. God is known as Father because of His relationship with Jesus the Son. And Jesus is the only one who has that claim to that specific and special relationship with God. Now you may say to me, well, didn't you say last week that we are all called children of God? Doesn't the Gospel of John say that those who believed are given the right to be called children of God? And I would say, absolutely. You are correct, but we are grafted into the family through Jesus. Jesus brings us into that relationship. We become children of God through Jesus, but Jesus is the one who is the perfect revelation, reflection of God in entirety. You know, you all say to me all the time, uh, man, you can't deny your son. You know, he, you can't, he, he looks like you, he acts like you, behaves like you in some ways. Um, well, I want to give his mom some credit, too. I mean, she's part of it. But, but the point is, what you're saying is, when you do that, is you say, gosh, your, your son is kind of a reflection physically of you or, or in his behavior of you. And the reality is that's the truth for all of us. We are reflections of, of others. Uh, we are, in, in our appearance, often somewhat reflective of our parents. We are, in our behavior, sometimes reflective or often reflective of those who have raised us. We become reflections of a specific relationship, not perfect reflections, and we have our own uniqueness. But, but this is what I'm getting at. Jesus, as the Son, is for us the perfect reflection of God, only begotten Son. And that is to say that it is, if it is of God, it is also of Jesus. If it is of Jesus, it is it of God? And we see nothing in him are no un in God there are no unchristlike qualities. And and what that means is that our our faith is founded in the revelation of who God is in Jesus. And if it doesn't fit with who Jesus is, it's not who we're called to be. That's why I say over and over, you cannot hate in the name of Jesus. You cannot do it. Well, you can try, but you can't do it with integrity. Now you can take a stand, you can have um, and, and we are called to be firm in our, our faith. We are called to be firm in, in who we believe Christ has called us to do. But you cannot hate another human being in the name of Jesus. Because you cannot in any way, and I dare you to try, explain to me how you can hate in the name of the one who was nailed to a cross and looked at those who nailed him there and said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. If Jesus can love them... Explain to me how we could hate anyone in the name of Jesus. It's not of God. Because Jesus is the reflection. He is the Son of God. And in Him we see what the Father looks like. What's the Gospel of John say? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And the next word that we look at ties into that. And that is Lord. Jesus Christ, His only Son, Lord. Lord is the Greek word kyrios. Now, here's what's interesting. We don't use Lord language a lot. Outside the church, you know, you don't go around saying he's the Lord or, you know, we, we, it's just not common language in this day. But it was at one point. The word in which Lord is translated from, like I just said, is kyrios, which comes from the Greek. Well, that word kyrios is translated from a Hebrew word, which is Yahweh, which means God. 
When we affirm Jesus Christ, his only Son, Lord, we say this is God. And this is the great mystery and the profound challenge of our faith because it blows our minds to think about it. But when we recite that together and we speak Jesus is Lord, we're saying something profound. We're saying the one who is fully human, located in a time and place, lived as we lived, walked as we walked, breathed as we breathed, ate as we ate, had relationships like we have relationships. This one that was at one time 100% fully human in the same way we are was at the same time 100% fully God, fully divine. There was never a point in which he wasn't, though he emptied himself. This is what Paul says in Philippians. He says, though he was in the form of God, though he shared an existence with God, he did not equate equality with God as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Jesus says in John chapter 10, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Jesus says in John chapter 14, the Father and I are one. It goes back to this singular and special relationship. And the church wants to make it very clear from the time that we began to worship this Messiah, that when you worship Jesus, you worship God. God who has revealed himself in a specific way and made himself known in a unique place and time, but nonetheless God of God. In fact, if we were to look at the Nicene Creed, it spells this out. I want you to hear what the Nicene Creed says. And keep in mind, this is birthed out of a time when the church is trying to make it clear to those who would follow what it means to proclaim Jesus as Lord. And this is what it says. It says, We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, through Him all things were made. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And all things were made in Him, through Him. We affirm that Jesus is the incarnation of God, and there is no distinction. There is a unique experience, but there is no separation of those two truths. And yes, it will blow your minds to try to think about it. But our call isn't to explain or even fully grasp the truth of God, but to have faith. So, we believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, Lord. If there's one word in there we can't skip, and is the word that shapes it all, and it's our. O-U-R. See, because everything else is a theological declaration. It's a declaration of who God is, of the way God's known. It's kind of the head knowledge. But when we say that he is not only Lord, but he is our Lord, we make a declaration of who we are. We make a heart declaration. And what we say is this is the one in whom we follow. This is the one in whom our foundation is built. This is the one in voice of whose voice we seek to listen to. This is the one whose call we seek to be obedient to. This is the one we want to honor with our lives. He is our Lord. He's the defining reality of our life. He is the one that speaks into us and who we seek to respond in obedience to. This is the foundation on which our fellowship and our community is built and our lives are built. And it was profound in the time in which this statement would have emerged to say that Jesus is Lord. Because context matters. If you lived 
in the time of Jesus, or you lived in the generations immediately following Jesus, and you grew up in a Roman-occupied world, or you were a Roman citizen, as many of those early believers were, you would have grown up with an affirmation that a good Roman made, and it was a declaration of who was Lord. But it wasn't Jesus. Do you know who for a good Roman was Lord? Caesar. And that was a common affirmation. Caesar is Lord. And what that meant was we are obedient to Caesar. We do what Caesar asks. We follow in the way of Caesar. So when the Christians come along, see, here's the thing. The Romans could have cared less if those early believers thought Jesus was the anointed Messiah. They could have cared less. They could have cared less if they thought Jesus was, had a special relationship with God. That didn't bother them either. But when they began to declare Jesus as Lord, it was an affront to Caesar. It was a declaration that we are not governed by his word. We are not governed by his will. We are not, we are not built on his desire. We listen and respond first and foremost to the voice of God in Jesus. That's who we honor. And those early Christians knew what that meant. To say Jesus is Lord meant we're willing to die for him. We might lose our mortal life, but we will preserve our eternal soul in our relationship with Jesus. Better to die here and live there than to live a few years here and give up that eternity with Christ. Jesus is Lord was a declaration of who they are and what their faith was about. See, we make a declaration. Every time we share this creed, we make a declaration. Matthew 16, I told you that Jesus started with that question, who do they say that I am? But Jesus then asked a second question. He looked at Peter, he looked at James, and he looked at John, and he looked at Andrew, and he looked at the rest of them. And he said, who do you say I am? Who do you say that I am? That is the same question Jesus asks. And it's not enough. It's not enough to say he's a good teacher. He's a moral example because that's not the complete picture. Every time we recite this together, we declare who we say he is. Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. That is profound in our understanding of our identity and our faith. And I want to read to you a quote as we close from C.S. Lewis. It's found in Mere Christianity. You may have heard it before, but it is profound and it's a little challenging. But I want you to hear what C.S. Lewis says. He says, I'm here trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him being Jesus. They say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be a lunatic. On the level with a man who says he's a poached egg. Or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come away with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. We face a question. Who do you say 
that I am. I pray for now and forever that would be our answer. Let us pray. Gracious God, birth in us faith, renew in us faith, strengthen our walk. We don't always understand the full mysteries of who you are. We know that in Christ you did something eternity changing. Because when you came and you died and you overcame death, you grafted us into a promise of life. And that is why it matters. That is why we say Jesus is Lord. May that be the truth that shapes us, compels us forward in faith, and calls us to obedience. In Jesus' name.